Some crimes are so heartbreaking or shocking that they earn the label crime of the century. But the stories that made headlines in decades past aren't necessarily remembered today. I'm Amber Hunt, a journalist and author, and in each episode of this show, I'll examine a case that's maybe lesser known today, but was huge when it happened. This is Crimes of the Centuries. Theora Hicks was always a mystery to those who knew her. She was unusually smart, pursuing a medical degree at a time when women only comprised about 4% of U.S. physicians. Her girlfriends, who called her Teddy, said she didn't drink or smoke. She didn't like to talk about herself much. In fact, her roommates said they gave up even asking personal questions because they knew she wouldn't answer. When you see a photo of her, she even looks like an enigma. The best surviving image shows a dark-haired woman with a pixie cut and a facial expression that falls somewhere between knowing smile and condescending smirk. Considering how private a woman she was, it's almost ironic that her murder at age 24 in 1929 exposed to the world some of her deepest, most personal secrets, ones that challenged newspaper censors of the day and would also lead to the downfall of a celebrated college professor who also happened to be an Olympic gold medalist. Alice and Beatrice Buston really liked the roommate they had recruited to share their apartment on Neal Avenue in Columbus, Ohio. The two sisters hailed from Cleveland and both attended Ohio State University. At age 29, Alice was the older of the two. She'd found the girl's roommate by asking a classmate of hers in the university medical school. She thought it was funny that Theora Hicks didn't talk much about her personal life, but it was also easy to rationalize at the time. Even in the 1920s, medical school was grueling, so Alice figured that Theora didn't have time for much of a personal life, hence no need to talk about it. The only thing that gave them pause is that they had managed to glean that she was seeing a guy in Columbus, but Theora refused to talk about him at all. Because of that, her roommates are suspicious of her activity. That's Columbus historian Doreen Newhouse Sauer talking to WOSU Public Media. Theora's roommates might have been suspicious, but only in a ooh, who she's secretly dating kind of way. Which is one of the reasons the Buston sisters weren't alarmed when Theora wasn't home as they went to bed June 13, 1929. When they woke up and noticed she still wasn't home, they figured she must have pulled an all-nighter studying, or maybe she'd grown closer to the mysterious bow. By that afternoon, however, they felt uneasy enough to go to the police station and report her missing. Meanwhile, on the western outskirts of town, two teenage boys arrived at the New York Central Railroad rifle range. Milton Miller and Paul Crumlauf had gone to the range for target practice. While getting ready to start, one of them noticed something odd in the weeds, a bundle of clothing, they thought. The two went to investigate and discovered that it was a woman's body. Mercifully, she was lying face down. 
They could only tell that this woman was dressed, and dressed well in a brown dress with a white collar, according to the first newspaper stories about an unidentified body found at the rifle range. And they could tell her right hand tightly grasped a bloody handkerchief. When police arrived and turned her over, the sight of the wounds was overwhelming. The woman's head had been crushed by some kind of blunt instrument, likely a... Ball-peen hammer. Columbus historian Ed Lentz. And then when that wasn't sufficient to, to the end, he ended up using a knife to finish the job. Her throat had been slit through both the carotid artery and the jugular. Whoever had attacked this woman had made damn sure she was dead. After the boys made their report, police circled back to the Boston sisters, who had already returned home after filing their missing persons report. Officers delivered the worrisome news of the unidentified slain woman and began peppering Alice and Beatrice with questions. With each answer, it became clearer that the dead girl and the roommate were one and the same. To be certain, police brought out some of the personal belongings found with the victim, specifically a watch she always wore, which the sisters recognized. Yes, they said, the dead woman you found is our roommate, Theora Teddy Hicks. She's the only child of this very sainted-looking couple. Theora had been born in New York, but raised in Bradenton, Florida, by her school principal father and homemaker mother. The couple had been trying for years to conceive a baby and had given up hope entirely. But then, just as they veered toward middle age, it happened. Joanna Hicks got pregnant at age 41. She had Theora on August 10th, 1904. From the start, Theora wasn't like most girls. She was fiercely independent. She had a sharp mind as well as wit. After high school, she enrolled for undergrad at Ohio State University and then, upon graduating, went straight into the College of Medicine. Her short, shorn hair was by no means revolutionary in the late 1920s, but she was ahead of her time in a lot of other ways. Her roommates couldn't know this, but one of those ways had to do with sex. Theora talked openly with the men in her life about books she'd read about sex. She was adventurous on this front. A former boyfriend said that she initiated all kinds of new things with him. So she's the one who is suggesting that they try um, various drugs for a sexual enhancement. Now, about half of women enrolled in college in this era were sexually active, according to polls of the day. So Theora having sex before marriage was by no means unique. But this was still a pretty prudish time on the whole. Oral sex had just started to emerge as a mainstream sexual technique and, in fact, was illegal in many places. Many believed that if you were succumbing to your primal urges in ways that couldn't produce a baby afterward, you were being outright sinful. Theora would hear none of that. She liked to sneak away to open fields where she could scream with abandon. Of course, that wasn't common knowledge when her body was discovered. Only the men who'd been with her knew anything about that side of her. Luckily for police... One of those men stepped forward straight away and got himself arrested. Marion Myers was an Ohio State University graduate who had fallen hard for Theora. She was unlike any girl he'd ever met before. Smart, witty, adventurous, and not at all exclusive. That last trait wasn't his favorite, but he was trying to be open-minded. Marion knew that his girlfriend saw other men, 
One lover she had mentioned was especially scandalous, but he tried not to let it bother him. The year before Theora died, the two met in Marion's car on a lover's lane along the Scioto River to have sex. The police showed up, tapped on this steam-fogged window, and fined the couple $20 apiece. That's about 320 bucks in today's money. The lovebirds gave the cops fake names and paid their fines. Marion wanted to make things official and monogamous, and he figured he wasn't a terrible catch himself, what with having landed a job with the Ohio Department of Agriculture, making him a decently paid state employee. So he asked Theora to marry him. Her reaction wasn't what he had hoped. She laughed. Marion ended their relationship and had since moved away some 130 miles north of Columbus. But it turned out that he had been back to the OSU campus the very night Theora died. This made him a prime suspect straight away in her murder. Now, if police worried he would be hard to find, he made it easy for them by reaching out first. Word had reached Marion that his former paramour had been killed, and he'd thought a fraternity brother was pulling his leg. He called the police to find out it was true, then headed to Columbus. Marion, who by this time was engaged to another woman, figured that detectives would have some questions for him. And boy, did they. They arrested him. This might sound premature, and in today's world it would be. But back in the 1920s, arrests on mere suspicion charges were commonplace. The types of folks we call persons of interest weren't just sought for questioning. They were legally detained, sometimes for days, sometimes even longer. It wasn't until 1990 that the U.S. Supreme Court made this super sexy-sounding ruling. Today, we hold that Riverside County is entitled a combined probable cause determinations with its arraignment proceedings, but that it must offer those combined proceedings within 48 hours or less following a warrantless arrest. Weekends and holidays may not be excluded from this time limit. Exciting stuff, I know, but the gist is that nowadays you can arrest someone without a warrant if you've got probable cause, but you have a 48-hour time limit in which to arraign them. Back in the 20s and 30s, a rumor that you were involved with a crime was often enough to land you behind bars and keep you there, as investigators gathered evidence. Marion was held on a suspicion charge and immediately questioned. When he didn't confess right away, investigators took him to the morgue and insisted he look at his supposed handiwork, as in Theora's brutally disfigured corpse. He cried at the sight of her and nearly collapsed. He told police he had no idea who would do something like this to Theora, but he also mentioned another of her lovers, the one that he instinctively had known would cause a scandal. The other guy in Theora Hicks's life wasn't an OSU student, but rather a prominent professor. Historian Sauer again. And that is the veterinary uh, professor at Ohio State who lives on West 10th Avenue with his wife and his little girl and is a member of King Avenue Church and he's upstanding. His name was James Howard Snook. And he's seen as a very bookish man. Snook was an older man in his early 40s when he first met Theora. 
because Fiora didn't come from much money. She uh, worked fairly menial jobs around the university to help support herself. That's how her path crossed with Snooks. She had been a graduate student who had done some work for him. This was basically secretarial work for which Theora was paid pennies, but pennies back in the 1920s bought actual food. Now, Snook was a well-respected man on campus, and not just because he was a bigwig in the veterinary medicine department. He was actually an inventor, having created a device called a Snook hook to aid in the neutering and spaying of cats and dogs. That hook's still used today. Turn the hook so that it's straight up and down, and lift up, and with slight forward tension. You can feel the tension on the... And Snook had another claim to fame. This Buckeye was a member of the U.S. Olympic pistol team, which he won a gold medal in the men's 30-meter military pistol event in 1920 Olympics in Belgium. The 1920s was too early for televised Olympic Games, but Snook was one of five team members flown to Antwerp to compete in pistol shooting in the 7th Olympiad, which came on the heels of World War I. Back then, the only way to learn who won was through the newspapers, and if anyone had been paying attention, they actually would have had a hard time figuring out that Snook was on the team. The wire stories that ran nationwide misspelled his name as Smook constantly, and some of the stories even got his first name wrong. But Snook knew he was on the winning team, and so did his mom and colleagues. He was proud of his pistoleering and had kept up shooting as a hobby in the nine years since his Olympic appearance. When police learned of Snook's name from Marion Myers, they went to his house to ask a few questions. He'd been eating breakfast with his wife and seemed annoyed by the interruption. Can I finish my meal? He asked. The cop said, sure, we'll just let the missus know why we're questioning you and you can show up at the station whenever you see fit. Snook realized he didn't have the upper hand in this situation and agreed to leave with the officers. Snook said he had heard about the murder and knew Theora superficially because she'd done a bit of work for him. That was the extent of their relationship, he said. Poor girl, I sure hope you find who did this fiendish thing. Police were dubious. Marion Myers had been pretty specific in the details he said Theora had shared with him about her other lover. They asked more questions, perhaps a little more forcefully the second time around. Snook admitted, Well, I knew her just a little bit because once I'd given her a ride in the rain. The police pressed more. Actually, it started out as a single ride in the rain, but then it became a regular thing. We got to be friendly. More police pressure. And by friendly, I mean in the biblical sense. Over a three-year period. Also, I lent her money. And I also taught her how to shoot a gun at the very gun range where her body was discovered. But... He insisted, I had nothing to do with her murder. Now police had two viable suspects in custody, both with clear motive for murder, but both denying any involvement whatsoever. Some on the force leaned toward Marion Myers being the killer. Surely it made sense that the young man would have felt slighted by the callous rejection of his marriage proposal. Maybe he decided if he couldn't have Theora, no one could. To many, that made more sense than Snook being the killer. After all, Theora seemed a free love type, so police assumed she didn't make many demands on her lovers, aside from, well, pleasurable ones. And Snook seemed to be a measured, well-to-do man who, despite his affair with Theora, 
loved his wife Helen and baby daughter. As the questioning of Myers and Snook continued, so too did the investigation into all matters of Theora's life. That included her finances, which piqued some questions. See, I mentioned Theora worked little jobs on campus. In fact, the last night she was seen alive, that's June 13, 1929, she actually had left such a job answering phones at a hospital to go on a date. But though Theora only worked these fairly piddly jobs, her bank account told a different story. And her parents did send her money, but suddenly she has well over $1,000 in a bank account, and it's not really known how she gets this. More than $1,000 saved, and 1000 bucks back then was something like 16000 in today's money. Snook said he had lent her some money, but that had been about a grand a year earlier, and he had documentation showing that she had already repaid the loan with interest. As reporters spread word about Theora's mysterious wealth, the public's interest in her murder grew stronger. The all-caps above-the-fold headline in the Dayton Daily News read, Professor, State Employee Held in Murder of Girl. Police, of course, asked both Myers and Snook for their alibis the night of the murder. Myers said, yes, he had been in Columbus, but that was only because his old fraternity was throwing a shindig. Several of his frat brothers confirmed that he'd been with them all night, never leaving. Snook said he was working in his university office until after 9 p.m. His wife said she heard him come home about 9.30 p.m. The banging of the screen door alerted her. She called down to him, but he didn't answer, which wasn't unusual. Since she was busy with the baby anyway, she didn't pay him much mind. A couple of hours later, she finally went down to check on him, and he was sitting in the kitchen with a sandwich. If the timing was right, it'd mean that neither Myers nor Snook had time enough to kill Theora on the outskirts of town. But the exhaustive newspaper coverage of the case turned up additional witnesses. One was a taxi driver who said he had picked up a woman matching Theora's description outside of the place she'd been working that night. The woman was clearly distracted, agitated, having him drive around in circles, apparently looking for someone who wasn't appearing. The driver told reporters that Theora asked to bump cigarettes off him twice, but she was so nervous that she only took a couple of puffs from each one. A second witness was a woman who had never heard the name James Snook, but she recognized his face from pictures that ran with the newspaper stories. To her, this man was Howard Snook, and Theora Hicks was his wife, Mrs. Snook. Howard had rented a room from this woman. He paid rent weekly. She had only seen his wife once, but she'd noted the age difference. Police brought the landlady into the station and asked her if she recognized Snook, sitting solemnly in the interrogation room. Why, yes, she said. Snook didn't even try to argue. Yep, he admitted. I rented a room from this woman. Here's how he did it. He passes himself off as kind of like a traveling salesman. She's the younger wife. He's in his 40s. She's in her 20s. Snook copped to all of it, then played dumb. Should I have told you this earlier? My bad. Now, police didn't like this guy anymore. With Marion Meyer's alibi checking out, the cops zeroed in exclusively on Snook. The second day of his arrest, prosecuting attorney John J. Chester Jr. decided it was time to break him. He wanted nothing less than a confession, and he was going to get it one way or another. 
Every time I hear of a legal right we enjoy today, I always wonder what case prompted the rule. It's just like consumer warnings on products. There's a reason you're warned not to bathe with your toaster. And that's because someone did once upon a time, and it ended poorly enough that a lawsuit triggered a written warning on every product box. Whenever I see one, I'm reminded of a 90s comedy bit by comedian Bill Engvall. There's another warning that says do not use this blow dryer in the shower. (laughs) Who's writing this pamphlet? Y'all ever been in the shower? Honey, I'm done shampooing my hair. Toss me that blow dryer. Now, laws are much the same. Every one of them started somewhere. Today, you need probable cause to arrest and detain someone, which is generally attributed to a case called Gerstein v. Pugh from 1975. You also need to not beat confessions out of your suspects, which might seem like a no-brainer today. But in 1929, beating suspects was a gray area. So Snook was straight up beaten senseless. At one point, Chester, the prosecutor, grabbed him and began slapping his face back and forth with both hands, leaving red welts on his cheeks. Not only that, but when Snook asked for his lawyers, Chester downright refused. Attorney E.O. Ricketts literally stood outside the detective bureau where Snook, his client, was being questioned and banged on the door. And that was legal at the time because in 1929, the Sixth Amendment guaranteeing a defendant's right to counsel only applied to federal criminal matters. It wouldn't be until 1961 that it was extended to state matters, though even then it only applied to death penalty cases. It wasn't extended to all felonies, until 1963. In hopes of getting Snook to crack, investigators took him to the apartment that he had rented, which the press had dubbed the Love Nest, and then took him to the murder scene. According to reporters, Snook seemed unaffected, save for a slight shudder when he looked at the grass where Theora had bled out. Despite all of this pressure and abuse, Snook didn't buckle. At first, There were moments when it seemed like he was wavering, but he kept pulling himself together just as he seemed ready to break. This only infuriated Chester, who resorted to more severe tactics with every passing day. Finally, one full week after Theora was killed, Chester got what he wanted. He told reporters that Snook had signed a full confession. And in an impressively sneaky move, he also arranged for reporters to immediately meet with the sleep-deprived, physically assaulted suspect without his lawyers. In a stupor, he told the journalists exactly what he had told Chester, which they dutifully reported in the next day's paper. That way, when Snook's attorneys did challenge the confession in court, Chester was able to say, "Okay, fine, we won't use that during trial. We'll just use what he told reporters instead. And here's what he told them. Snook and Theora had met when she started working for him in 1926. At the time, Snook was reeling emotionally. The nearly two-year-old daughter he had with his wife, Helen, wasn't their first child. The couple actually had a son first, but the boy died in 1925. When the second baby came, Helen was focused on keeping that baby as healthy and happy as possible, so she and the baby shared a room while she and her husband began drifting apart. Meanwhile, he was running into Theora a bit. 
She was part of the stenography pool, meaning it was her job to take notes and dictation. And it so happened that Snook wrote a ton, and so they ended up working together a lot. What he had told police about giving Theora a ride on a rainy day was true. He'd actually given her and a friend that ride. But a week later, he offered her a solo ride in the country, during which they talked about personal stuff like marriage and relationships. The solo rides continued, and the discussions became more risque. Eventually, they began talking about the philosophy espoused in a book called Companionate Marriage by Ben Barlinzi, a famous judge of the era. Ben B. Lindsay said this kind of companionate marriage was better suited for the modern society. This is a lecture by Alexis Stanfield, a history instructor at Santa Ana College in California. Companionate marriage meant, you know, marrying for love, for friendship, for affection, um, marrying older, and using birth control to control when you would have a family or start your family. This discussion prompted Snook to lament his sexless marriage, which in turn prompted Theora to mention she didn't like dating guys her own age because they were inexperienced and also more likely to have diseases. Snook told reporters that their relationship wasn't about love. It was about pleasure. Quote, Our friendship developed rapidly and our auto rides increased in frequency. I took a very strong liking to the girl. But I do want it understood that ours was not a silly little love affair. I still love my wife and baby and want to see them happy. End quote. Snook and Theora met up at least once a week, sometimes running rooms by the day or finding secluded spots outdoors. Snook kept a blanket in his trunk for the latter meetups. The gun range was a regular stop and not just for liaisons. Theora had taken an interest in shooting, so Snook taught her how to handle pistols and rifles. She became a good shot, and Snook even gave her a 41 caliber double-barrel Derringer pistol to carry in her purse, even though it was illegal to carry concealed in Ohio at the time. The affair paused just twice. During both breaks, Theora hooked up with Marion Myers again, which Snook didn't mind. Myers was less amenable to sharing her, and supposedly once through a temper tantrum when she chose spending time with Snook over him. Helen Snook, meanwhile, was apparently completely in the dark about her husband's affair, though she must have sensed something was amiss. She did talk to a lawyer about a divorce in 1928, though she never officially filed, and she stood by Snook, even knowing he was guilty, until his death. Snook's confession was, of course, explosive, in part because... Few would have suspected Dr. James Snook, a respected professor at Ohio State University. The townsfolk just couldn't imagine this staid, balding bookworm of a man having a tawdry, years-long fling with a woman so progressive that some of her friends said she'd actually been accused plenty of being a man-hater. But according to Snook, Theora wasn't as laid back in free love as she might have seemed. As their affair progressed, she started to ruffle at the mention of Mrs. Snook. She also became more demanding, insisting they meet twice a week instead of weekly. And sometimes those meetings turned ugly. They often fought. This fun fling wasn't so fun anymore. 
Four days before Theora's death, Snook was out playing golf at the Scioto Country Club when a worker came out and told him he'd gotten a phone message from someone saying they needed to speak to him and that it was important. Snook returned the call but got no answer, so he continued to golf. At the fifth hole, however, Theora appeared and she looked pissed. He begged her to keep her voice down, he said, but she screamed that she wanted him to leave with her and would not relent until he did. By this time, Snook said he was eager to end things, but not sure how to do it. He had promised his mother a visit, a trip that would take him out of town to Lebanon, Ohio for a few days, but Theora was furious that his wife and baby were going too. The day Theora died, on Thursday the 13th, she took a break from her job and was driven around by that taxi looking for Snook. They finally connected. Theora climbed into Snook's blue Ford coupe. Snook suggested they go to their rented apartment, in part because he had planned to give it up the next week anyway. One more time for old time's sake, right? Theora said she would prefer to stay outdoors, so Snook took her to the gun range. He drove in deep, so no one would see. Now, you might notice that the way Snook tells the story, Theora has gone batshit crazy. Normally, you might expect her to be portrayed in the media as the young girl lured in by the older man. Instead, she was portrayed as a deviant and seductress. Now the story reverses. And because he is the murderer, one would assume he is the villain. Of course, he took this young girl's life. On the other hand, there is nothing about her that suggests that she was naive, innocent, or anything but perhaps very calculating. In other words, this was something she had done up until now in other situations to get what she wanted. It's worth noting, though, that we have no other witnesses to refute or corroborate Snook's recollection of things. We don't know what promises he might have made to her or how casual she was led to believe the relationship was. We just have Snook's version of things. And according to him, Theora demanded that Snook cancel the trip to his mother's. When he refused, she spat, Damn you! I'll kill your wife and your baby! I'll kill you too! Then Snook said she picked up her purse, which is where he knew she sometimes kept her handgun. Without thinking, Snook grabbed a ball-peen hammer from a toolbox inside his car and bashed Theora in the head. She was stunned and screamed, Damn you! again. She tried to burst from the car and slam the door on Snook, but she managed to slam her own hand in the door instead. Bleeding now from the head and her hand, she reached for a handkerchief in her purse and staggered out of the car. Snook slid across the seat and followed her, bashing her again and again in the head. Somehow, she was still alive, groaning in a heap on the grass. He told reporters that he didn't want her to suffer, so he took out a pocket knife and calmly sliced her neck, making sure that he cut both her jugular vein and carotid artery to ensure she died quickly. After that, Snook said he grabbed Theora's purse and searched it. There was no gun. He had killed her, thinking she was going for a gun that she didn't even have on her that day. When he sped away from the gun range, he noticed it was 9.30 p.m., Coincidentally, the same time that his wife heard a door open and close back at their home. She had assumed it was her husband, but it wasn't. It was likely the wind or some other rustling. Snook actually didn't get home until 11 p.m. He washed his weapons of Theora's blood, 
then cooked himself a hamburger. Helen came downstairs to check on him, and because it was dark in the kitchen, didn't notice that his clothes were stained with blood. The next day, Snook got his car cleaned and also cleared out belongings from the so-called love nest. Later, just as he mentioned to his wife that he vaguely knew the young woman whose death was in the newspaper that day, the police knocked on his door. Despite his best efforts to conceal his involvement, investigators had connected him to Theora within 24 hours of her death. Once taken in for questioning, Snook was never again a free man. The Snook-Hicks case, as it came to be known, was national news. And it was one of the more spectacular trials in Columbus history that was followed very closely, day by day, with large amounts of the court transcript reprinted in the newspaper. Historian Ed Lentz again. So the case basically sort of grabbed not only local but national attention at the time. High-profile reporters from all the biggest papers and wire services descended on Columbus for what they labeled the trial of the century. As author Mark Gribben writes in The Professor and the Co-Ed, Scandal and Murder at the Ohio State University, quote, Criteria for winning the trial of the century title are subjective, beyond the necessary murder charge, of course. But at the time of the Snook-Hicks case, sex was an essential component. A case involving a love triangle was always a contender, as was any trial where the defendant was female, a member of the clergy, or from the upper class. Blunt objects, rope, or poison always trumped crimes involving knives, and the use of a gun, unless there was a struggle for it during the commission of the crime, its source was a mystery, or it was wielded by the woman who later claimed self-defense, was almost cause for disqualification, end quote. Now, Snook's confession in this case fascinates me on a few levels. For starters, it serves as an example of why police have historically felt justified in beating statements from suspects. Because this isn't a wrongful confession case. Snook is guilty. He never backtracked on his confession. So if police hadn't badgered and beaten him, if they hadn't deprived him of sleep and food, maybe they wouldn't have gotten the self-incriminating statements that ultimately ensured his conviction. At the same time, though, we're not supposed to be an ends-justifies-the-mean society. We're supposed to have the right to not incriminate ourselves. And by wearily wording his confession the way he did, Snook condemned himself to die, whether it was 100% true or not. Remember that part in his confession about how it appeared Theora was suffering, so he slit her throat in what he deemed a mercy killing? Well, what he described was premeditation, which took second-degree murder off the table entirely. And in Ohio at the time, a first-degree murder conviction resulted in an automatic death sentence. His lawyers fought mightily to avoid this, of course. During trial, they painted Theora as a sex fiend and drug addict. To bolster the addict theory, Snook took the stand to elaborate on the confession he had given reporters to say that his lover pestered him relentlessly for drugs. The attorneys also tried to argue temporary insanity, which was made difficult by the judge's refusal to allow defense-hired psychiatrists to spend 60 days observing him. Finally, they argued that Snook had killed Theora in self-defense, 
To get the jury to believe this theory, Snook testified that he had left out some important details from his earlier confession. Specifically, he said that once he and Theora arrived at the gun range, they had clumsy, unsatisfying sex in the car, after which Theora chastised Snook and berated his abilities. She also, according to Snook, performed an act on him with her mouth during which she used more force and teeth than is usually preferred. He was in intense pain when he swung that hammer to stop her, he said. This testimony was deemed unfit for print, but word spread anyway because the trial was so popular that there were lines of spectators clamoring to get seats every day. Women were especially fascinated by the grisly case. And some things never change. Newspapers printed most of the graphic details, oral sex excluded, that is, while also running editorials about how disturbing it was that people wanted to read all those graphic details. Less than two months after Theora's death, a jury of 11 men and one woman gathered for three weeks to hear the state's case against Snook. After both sides rested, the jury took 28 minutes to deliberate before finding James Snook guilty. Three months after that, Snook's appeal was rejected. The justices criticized investigators for how they elicited Snook's confession, but they also said the circumstantial evidence would have still led to his conviction. On February 28, 1930, eight months after killing Theora, Snook spent his last day alive with his wife. For his last meal, he ate fried chicken, lamb chops, mashed potatoes, ice cream, and coffee. At 7 p.m., he was strapped into Ohio's electric chair. Like most deaths by electricity, Snook's was ugly and violent. His body strained against the restraints while his bald head blistered and smoldered. From a documentary titled Old Sparky. He convulsed against the straps and turned bright red. The witnesses were horrified. There was a smell of burning flesh and a curious crackling sound. Snook was declared dead at 7.09 p.m. His name had been so tarnished that when his remains were buried, his wife had a pseudonym engraved on his tombstone. It stayed anonymous until 2005, after which ghost hunters started appearing there and posting weird videos like this one. I'm standing at the grave of James Howard. He was sentenced to death by electric chair, so trying to see if his spirit lingers on. James Howard, if you can hear me, show me a sign. Lingering spirit or not, Snook has gone down in Ohio history as one of the state's most infamous villains, and Theora, one of its most secretive victims. To research this story, I read a lot of newspapers. There were very few audio or video recordings related to this case. I also read Mark Gribben's book, The Professor and the Co-Ed, Scandal and Murder at the Ohio State University. Crimes of the Centuries is a production of the Obsessed Network. To learn more about its shows, go to obsessnetwork.com. This case was researched and written by me, Amber Hunt, and produced by Garrett Tiedemann. Steve Tipton edited the script. Original music is by Bruce Hunt and Andrew Higley. Other music comes from Blue Dot Sessions and Universal Music Productions. 
If you like us, help us out by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. For more information or to recommend a case, go to centuriespod.com. On Instagram and Twitter, we're at Centuries Pod, and check out our Crimes of the Centuries podcast Facebook page. <laughs>